According to the National Center for Drug Abuse, over 165 million Americans ages 12 and up are currently abusing drugs or alcohol. Of those 165 million Americans, there is a mom, dad, sister, brother, wife, husband, son, daughter, or grandparent praying and pleading that they would stop. Addiction is a subject most people don't like to talk about and is kept behind closed doors. But the Finding Hope podcast will bring light to the subject and give families that are living in shame, guilt, hopelessness, fear, worry, and anger, tools and education to find strength, peace, happiness, joy, and hope. Thank you for joining us today. But before we begin, I'm excited to announce that registration for our third annual Finding Hope Retreat is now open. This year's retreat theme will be Rooted in Truth and will be March 31st through April 2nd at Post Oak Lodge and Retreat in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This will all be done in a relaxed atmosphere with keynote speakers, including Hope is Alive's COO, Allison Lang, and Christian author and speaker, Karen Jenkins Salisbury. There will also be incredible breakout sessions, small group discussions, worship, and a time of self-care. You can learn more and register at hopeisalive.net forward slash rooted in truth, which will also be linked in today's show notes. But let's get started with today's episode. I am so excited. We have a guest speaker with us today, and I'm so excited for you to hear her personal testimony. And um, I met her in 2019 and just how she's just very incredible, very knowledgeable. And so I'm excited to announce uh, Miss Trina Thomas is with us today. Welcome, Trina. Hello. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I live in Jinx, Oklahoma, which is a suburb of Tulsa. Uh, I live alone, but I have two elderly (laughs) pets. I have a beautiful lab named Sophie and a big old cat named Howie. I also have a son. He's in his early 30s. His name is Dylan, and he's currently on staff with Hope is Alive. Very good. And so our listeners here, I just want you to tell them... um, you have been surrounded by addiction most of your life. Mm-hmm. So will you just tell our listeners a little bit how addiction has impacted your life? Sure. Well, let me start. I, I grew up uh, in Tulsa with two very loving parents. Um, but I learned early on, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. That was most of my childhood and early adult. Um, I learned that their narrative on how you live and parent is to work hard and be uh, resourceful and don't air your dirty laundry Mm. and don't talk about your problems and just buck up and and get it done so we had a we had a very um, stable household but we all went to our separate corners and we didn't talk about our problems Mm. and that included me that i learned that early on that it didn't matter if i had big feelings they were not going to be listened to or honored because my parents didn't model that. Mm-hmm. Um, they were in their own corners. Um, my dad retreated to the ball game um, and did the yard work, and my mom worked a lot. And uh, often she wasn't home at night. And I learned later that she she numbed with beer mm-hmm. and often alone and hid it. 
So, so you didn't realize that when you were growing up? No, I did not. That did not come off. The layers of that did not come off until I was in my uh, 30s and 40s. And it was kind of an aha moment that I had in an Al-Anon meeting. Okay. It didn't, I didn't even register the impact that my mother's behavior um, around that and on other things affected how the decisions I made and the, the way that I handled my relationships as, a, as an early adult. So. Okay. And so um, you talked a little bit about your childhood and not airing the dirty laundry, keeping it behind closed doors, and um, that you didn't realize your mom had an addiction to, sounds like, alcohol, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so you're in your 30s and 40s and discovering this. Um, how did that feel, or how did that healing process go? Well, when I, in my early adult, I, you know, of course, because I learned to be very independent, I learned to, to not rely on anybody else, to not express any kind of drama. Um, so I attracted partners in my life that were perfectly willing to allow me to be in charge. Mm. They were good people. They cared about me, but they didn't challenge me. They didn't push any envelopes that forced me to do different. And so what happened was, over time, all of them had substance issues. Interesting. They hit hit it for a while, and then at some point they couldn't. And so when it came out, it usually came out sideways. Mm -hmm. Um, I would would go into my control mode. Mm -hmm. I would try to fix it. I had a plan because I'd always had a plan for me. I can have a plan for you. And so it would work until it didn't work. So I, when I was divorced from Dylan's father, I was in my 30s. Um, He was very young. He was only two years old. Um, I had a lot of anger around that relationship, a lot of anger, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of frustration, and I had to do something with it. So I was invited to an Al-Anon meeting. And that was the first time I had ever been exposed to any kind of 12-step. was in my late 30s and early 40s, even though I'd been around, obviously, addiction a lot. And so, Al-Anon, you went there for your anger, those different issues. Mm -hmm. And that's when, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe the layers started to come off. Yes. And things that were in the dark started to come to light. Yes. And you started, you realizing about your mom, mm-hmm. you know, and did you stay with that support group? Yes. I've been a part of Al-Anon probably well over 20 years. Okay. And I've, I find it to be very beneficial, but the piece that uh, was missing for me in Al-Anon was the deep connected relationships that you have in Finding Hope. Mm. Um because everything is kept anonymous, mm-hmm. as it should be. That's yeah. the principle in 12-step programs. But I didn't have those connections, nor did I have the faith piece that you get in the Finding Hope. I didn't have the God-centered moments um, in my recovery that I needed, that I, that I gathered in Finding Hope. And I also went to a lot of AA meetings, mm-hmm. open AA meetings, because I was really hungry to figure out what made these guys and women tick in there. I needed to understand um, the substance abuse 
and because it could have just as easily been me. Yeah, absolutely. It I mean, could have a- just as, you know, I just happened to be on the other side of of the abuse, the drug abuse and the alcohol abuse. But it could have just, you know, I I abused drugs when I was in college, mm-hmm. uh, not nearly, but I walked away when I was done. Um, I did it because I I fooled myself in thinking I needed amphetamines to keep up with my crushing school schedule and my work schedule, which was a lie, but mm-hmm. I did it. It's what we, we did. So I could have just as easily been in that same boat. Yeah. Um, so you started going to Al-Anon and the layers started opening, um, realizing it had been around you your whole life. Right. And then let's fast forward to your son. Mm-hmm. When did you realize your son may have had a problem? Um, he had had, we had struggled all of his life because he had ADD. Mm-hmm. And so he was always one of those, the class clown. I was always having to go meet with the counselor. Um, and because I didn't have the tools that I have today, um, I just wanted to go into my command control mode and use my anger in trying to fix it. And, uh, and I didn't realize, and it took, when he became a teenager, and of course, every I, I'm on a, I'm not going to say every, but I assumed some of the things that he was doing was just a phase. Mm. You know, it's really. And I hear that a lot. It's really <laughs> easy when you're a parent or a loved one, and you get the glimmer that there may be something going on here that's bigger than you, or bigger than you know what to do and parent. So you put this wall of denial up, and thinking it's just a phase. So, I'm just going to get, you know, he'll get over it. And I hear that a lot. Yeah. I, about, I don't know, six to eight months ago in one of my Finding Hope meetings, the mom was there trying to figure out, is this a phase? Is this? Mm-hmm. So, and it's hard to know sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, but when did you realize this is more than just, say, a teenager or just a phase? Well, I don't want to tell a lot of his story because that's for him to tell, but he got arrested mm-hmm. at 18. Um and it was involving um, opiates. So I knew, okay, we have a, this is much, this is a huge problem, mm-hmm. a much bigger problem. And I need help. I need help beyond going to, actually, I left Al-Anon for a few years. And that's another thing that a lot of people do, um, especially when they leave their loved one and, and his dad and I were divorced. And I thought, well, that problem's gone. I'm fixed. Mm-hmm. I'm good. I don't need to go to Al-Anon anymore. Well, I stepped back in the rooms of Al-Anon when Dylan got arrested. And I didn't step. I was in the fetal position, literally. I went crawling back into those rooms and said, I clearly don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to handle this. So, so and I love, I, I mean, I don't love it, but I love that you're mentioning that because that's so true. I mean, I see it all the times. It's like, okay, they're doing well. I got the tools. I don't need this anymore. But for me personally, I need the support. I need my people. I need to remember to continue to add these tools that you're talking about that you didn't have at first. I need to continue. I need to hear from the other people in the rooms, whether they're six months into it or five years into it. You can learn so much from each other. And so you started, so he got arrested. You decided, okay, I I need help. And, you know, I think that's huge is you put your pride to the side and said, I, I, I can't do this. 
I need the help for myself. And so I'm going to step into this Allen on the support group that for me to gain the tools and stuff. And so, um, what, tell us a little bit more what happens next in this story or journey. Well, I just kept going to Al-Anon. Um, I started working the steps, which is huge because mm-hmm. you can skirt around the idea of 12 step and you go, yeah, that's nice. Yeah. I'll pick up this piece. I don't really need that piece. Um, but when you go into a 12 step room and a lot with finding hope, you're peeling back the layers and saying, I am willing to be willing. Cause I don't know what I'm doing. And you've come to understand that this is a family disease. This is not Dylan's problem. This is not my problem. This is not my ex-husband's problem. This is a family disease and it comes from generations of behavior and generations of choices that get layered upon layered upon layered people that you don't come back and peel those, peel that onion back and look at, no, why didn't we talk about our big feelings? Mm-hmm. Why didn't we express our, our anger in a healthy way? Mm-hmm. So what happens is when you don't express those things, when you don't learn what you need to, to learn, you start numbing. That's, I'm assuming. So how do loved ones numb? Because we hear that the ones that we love, you know, with a substance use disorder, they can numb with the drugs and the alcohol. So what would you say a loved one of someone with a substance use disorder, how do they numb? Well, my mom, who was good at numbing, not only with the beer, but she numbed with working mm. and, and staying busy. Okay. Yep. So you can numb by being busy, mm-hmm. by filling your calendar up with all of these things that you have told yourself that nobody else can do. Mm. That it, this meeting won't get done if I don't if I don't do it. This church activity won't be as good if I'm not there running it. Um, and you become busy. I numbed by being busy. Um, I numbed with food. Mm-hmm. Um, I numbed by spending a lot of energy up in Dylan's business, which really, even though I was his mom, he was an adult at this point, and most of the things that he did. I had no control over. Mm. I lied to myself and thought I did, but I didn't have any control over it. He was an adult. And I lived in the shame and guilt of whatever he did reflected on me. Mm. So So when you're living in that, you know, what did you do? I mean, were you trying to fix it? Like, you know, um, some of our listeners are probably thinking, that's me and they might feel alone in this. So will you just share, you know, I say, think it, we're all a little crazy. Even the Finding Hope books talks about that. So what were some of those, just so people can realize that they're not alone in this and what they're feeling. And then we'll get to like, how did you overcome that? But what were some of those things that you did to try to control well, Dylan? Well, I hired Dylan the best defense attorney mm. when he first got arrested. Okay, I so did, this is at 18? At 18. Okay. I did not bail him out of jail. I never did that. Um, other people did, mm. but I didn't do that. Um, you know, I made sure he had a phone because heaven forbid he end up dead in a ditch and nobody can find him. Um, I would buy him gift cards for food. I wouldn't give him money, but I buy him gift cards for food. Well, what he would do is sell them. Yep. You know, so you have to get, you have to get smarter than the behavior 
And at some point, you just have to step back. For me, I had to step back and go, nope. Nope, I'm not comfortable with that. But I would I would try to fix. I would give him tons of advice. And that's one of the things that I've learned. I do, I no longer give unsolicited advice. Mm-hmm. I'm perfectly willing to share my opinion, but I ask if they want to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. I ask. And sometimes I say no, and I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. So um, I put a lot of energy in trying to help other people. And some of them wanted to be helped. Some of them didn't. And I like what you said there because I've talked to my, the leaders and that's what I see. I see them shift. So maybe you've gotten to the point where, okay, I'm going to set that boundary. I'm not going to help per se. Um, I'm not going to enable, I'm not going to fix this problem. And so then they start looking, is that codependency? They start looking for somebody else that they can fix and try to control. But really that's not healthy either. We need to remember, like, we have to stay focused on us. And I, you know, ask that I had a leader just recently. It's like, hey, can I give this to, I have this great idea for this um, person. I don't want to get too much on here, but too much. I, I was like, no, if they want to do the work, that if they want it, they need to do it themselves. You know, so I see that too. It's like, okay, I'm going to shift from this and focus on that. And so that almost goes back to some of that numbing stuff you're talking about. Like I'm going to shift from shifting to another unhealthy behavior. Would you agree with that? I I always, when I, I always try to double check my agenda Mm -hmm. when I'm getting ready to open my mouth and say this, what's my agenda? Am I trying to control the situation? Um, Am I trying to shame this person into doing something different? Am I trying to get revenge? Uh, Is my words going to be angry and hateful? Um, So I've, and I learned those, I learned that in the rooms of Al-Anon and and, uh, AA, to always check your agenda. Mm -hmm. Um, I learned something very wise. Mean what you say, say what you mean, don't say it mean. Yep. Yep, and I hear that all, all everywhere now. Like I just I always think of that, and it goes back to what we talk at Finding Hope. We need to respond mm-hmm. and not react. Right. And how do we do that? We have to pause and think. Kind of what you're saying. Double check our agenda. I always say stop, take some deep breaths, pray through it, and if it's out of that shame or that control, nothing needs to be done because that's going to be a reaction and not something healthy. That right. we have to stop pray and there might not be anything you need to say right but if we just react to it we're going to regret it or we might hurt ourselves or somebody else in the process absolutely yeah I've always believed it 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 didn't happen overnight but I've come to this realization with God's help that I this life that I've been given of being the mother of a drug addict um being the wife of some you know all of all of the stuff that I've lived Um, It was a tremendous gift that God gave me. My story is powerful, and it's a tremendous gift, what we've lived through, and we can either use it for good or we can live in the shame and the guilt and regret that it wasn't different. Mm -hmm. I remember someone, actually, when I went to Al-Anon as well, my sponsor said it was a blessing. I'm like, I wanted to hit her, to be honest. But now that I've been on this road and just... For myself, I've learned so much about me mm-hmm. through it all, right? Like right. I've 
I, and it's not just a relationship with my husband, it's relationships with everyone, right. with other family, with friends, with coworkers, all of that are, you know, the things we've learned. So, um, so let's go back. I know Dylan's story is Dylan's story. So you started going back to Al-Anon and you've been on this journey, I think you said about 15 years with him. Yes, he's 33 now, and it started in high school. Okay, so, yeah. and so you started going to Al-Anon. This was before Finding Hope was even a fine thing. Right, yes. <laughs> um, and so you started taking care of you, working the steps, peeling back those layers. Um, tell us a little bit, like, how did this impact Dylan and his recovery? <laughs> well, he used to tell people um, that his mom had rock star boundaries. <laughs> I don't necessarily agree with him on that, but we would laugh about it. I do remember one point when he had been kicked out of a treatment center for relapsing, and the counselor called him, me and had me in, had me on the phone, and he was uh, in the room in her office, and her first comment was, you need to come get him. He's relapsed. And I said, I'm not coming to get him, because he was an adult. He was mm-hmm. in his 20s. And she said, you're not? And I said, no. I said, I'm not coming to get him. She said, well, what are we supposed to do? And I said, well, I don't know. You're the counselor. He's got the problem. I guess you guys need to figure that out. And she said, well, would you be, uh, are you thinking you want him to go to another treatment center? I said, I don't know. This is not my problem. I said, you guys need to figure that out. And she goes, okay, let me talk to Dylan and um, I'll make some calls and I'll let you know what the plan is. And I said, okay, or not, whatever. And so she found Rob's Ranch, another Mm -hmm. treatment center, um, from Valley Hope to Rob's Ranch. And she called me back and said, you know, they're willing to take him. And I said, okay. And I said, awesome. She said, are you willing to transport him? Because they need someone to transport him. This was right before Christmas Mm -hmm. and it was freezing cold outside. And I said, yes, I can do that. Mm-hmm. So I drove to Valley Hope. I just pulled up in the front. He was standing out there like this whip puppy. He got in the car. We didn't talk much. But by this point, I wasn't angry. Mm-hmm. I had dealt with my anger. I just, you know, I just loved him for where he was. Mm-hmm. And that's another lesson. You've got to love these people in recovery for where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, meet them where they are. It doesn't mean you have to enable them or give in to them their demands, but just meet them where they are. Just be a safe place. So he got in the car with me, and I'll never forget, he turned on the um, radio, and it was the song Forgiveness. I don't remember the name of the, um, I just listened to it, but it. And he put that on repeat all the way from Valley Hope, which is in Cushing, Oklahoma, to Rob's Ranch was in Purcell, Oklahoma. All we listened to was the song Forgiveness. And all I could do was look at him and go, really? Really? (laughs) (laughs) So that we laugh about that. That was a funny moment in his story of addiction. So anyway. So he's on staff with us now. Yes. Which is so exciting. I've, you know, got to watch his journey. But it wasn't always easy. I Uh -uh. mean, he's been um, like in and out. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right? Oh, yeah. And, And so you know, you've been there with those boundaries through his ups and downs and getting kicked out here and there. And, but do you know what I see every time he was actually texting me right before you came, he always knows how much you love him. Mm -hmm. And 
every time I talk or, you know, with him, he even said, tell my mom, I love her. Like, and through those boundaries and that, um, detachment with love, you don't stop loving them. And he knows that he knows that through, I mean, I'm sure he probably didn't always say that to you. You use some, probably not so nice words sometimes, right. And threatened and all of that, like they do, but ultimately they know, he knows you love them. And I want the listeners out there to hear that, that they know we love them. You just got to tell them and, you know, and pray. And just yesterday I was watching a video and this lady, I can't remember her name now, but was talking about, we need to stop worrying about their social media, that they blocked us from here, blocked us from there. We need to stop searching for them, looking up all their records, all that time and energy, take them to the Lord and pray and use that energy you're using to search and and get on your knees and give them to God and let him do his work. And so um, before we wrap up here, I just want to ask you, is there anything, if there's a mom and just doesn't think there's hope, has lost all that hope and is out there, what would you say to encourage that mom or dad? Well, I will tell, I, I say this a lot in my Finding Hope meetings, and it came from an addict who's in recovery, um, he told me, as long as they're breathing, there's hope. Mm. And that's what I would say, as long as they're breathing, there's hope. I can't tell you how many relapses that I've lived through, um, you know, jail, prison, Mm -hmm. all those things, it's just part of his story. But um, as long as they're breathing, there's hope. And so what does that mom do during it all? She has to trust the process. Mm -hmm. She has to step back and focus on what she can take care of. And I think we have to remember it takes six months for some, takes 15, takes 20. You know, we have a staff member here. He's 61 and just graduated our program. And he was in his active addiction for 40 some years. And his mama didn't ever stop praying either. Mm -hmm. And, And so I love that. And so, um, real quick, I didn't even tell you I was going to do this, but I'm going to, you have been a part of our Finding Hope retreats. Mm -hmm. Um, The last two years, we're about to, I mentioned earlier that we're about to start our third one. Mm -hmm. And we already have people signed up from North Carolina, down in Texas, all over Kansas. And it's not just for people here in Oklahoma or Tulsa, Oklahoma. What why do you always attend? What do you, what's the one big aha from the retreat? Why someone should invest back into themselves um, for this retreat? Well, I feel like coming to that retreat gets to put you nose to nose and face to face with people who are living a story, maybe not identical to yours, but very similar. Mm -hmm. And we're all in a place of grace and understanding that we're not alone in this journey and it gives you a chance to have some fun Mm -hmm. and laugh Mm -hmm. and cry yep if you need to um ask questions you know ask what you may determine to be really silly questions but they're not because where else are you going to ask them yep what else you know what do you what do you need to know it's like well i did this was that good was that bad and i go it doesn't matter it doesn't matter so yeah and you get to be the people who understand Absolutely. you don't get it unless you live it and these people 
get it, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and so I like to leave each podcast with a challenge. And so I was just listening to some of the stuff you said. So I want to challenge our listeners, first of all. Trina talked about how she stepped away from meetings. And then when crisis hit again, she stepped back into meetings. I want to encourage you, if you are not plugged into a support group, we have great, Trina's one of our Zoom leaders on um, Finding Hope. We have great Zoom leaders, great Zoom meetings, or find another support group that's great for you. But get into a meeting, no matter if crisis is hitting or not, because you want to be plugged into that meeting in case crisis does hit. I also want to encourage you, she said, you got to be willing to be willing. And so, do you need that help? Be willing to say, I need help. I can't do this anymore. Surrender yourself, um, push that pride aside and be willing to be willing. So thank you again, Trina, for joining us today. And thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you to our listeners for being here with us this week. And you can learn more about Finding Hope as well as register for a retreat at findinghope.today. But before you go, we would love for you to give us a five-star review, share this on social media, and subscribe to this podcast so you don't mix our next hope-filled episode. Thanks again for joining me, Amy LaRue, and our special guest, Trina Thomas, in this episode of Finding Hope. And remember, you are not alone. It's not your fault. And there is. This episode of the Finding Hope podcast was brought to you by Hope is Alive Ministries. To learn more about Hope is Alive, visit our website at hopeisalive.net. If you are in need of immediate assistance, don't wait. Call us now at 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. That's 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. To find out more about Finding Hope and how you can get involved in a meeting close to you, visit findinghope.today. Music